listening to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Ian Kagi, who's going to tell us all about the Berkeley acquisition of Avatar Studios. First of all, radio is falling behind streaming, and I guess that's to no one's surprise. It's a singles world out there. Believe it or not, radio isn't built to handle it. It's built for an age of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and just can't handle the number of singles that are coming out today. And as a result, is basically pretty much behind the curve when it comes to what's popular and what isn't. Now, for instance, there are songs that are popular as soon as they come out on streaming, and a couple months later, by the time they've run their course on streaming, radio is just beginning to pick up on them. So radio is just not reacting fast enough to what's happening in the marketplace. As you can imagine, this isn't helping the popularity of radio too much, and they're really losing the prime demographic that radio, music radio especially, caters to. So what that is, is of course the 14 to 12 to 24 market, which right now they listen to less and less radio. Why? Well, streaming, for instance, there's three big likes. Of course, you can listen to what you want. There's a lot of variety, which is number two. And number three, of course, is you can listen to the music that perfectly matches your musical preferences. Now, when it comes to radio, in fact, you have none of that. First of all, there's way, way too many commercials because now what's happening is you have seven-minute pods where there's seven straight minutes of commercials, then you have program, then seven minutes of commercials. That's losing many millennials, and it's losing other demographics as well. Of course, you can't customize radio like you can streaming, and that's a really big deal. And there's very little variety on radio as opposed to streaming. So those things are going way against radio. So why do people actually listen to radio, the ones that are listening? Ease of use, all you have to do is turn it on and there it is. It also offers a companionship that you can't really get with streaming or you don't get it in the same way as streaming. So a lot of people will listen to it as that, as their companion, believe it or not. And of course, if you want to know about what's happening locally, Radio can be pretty good for that, not 100%, not always, but usually radio is pretty good on a local level. But what we're finding here is, on a whole, record labels believe that radio is about 30% less valuable than it's ever been in terms of actually doing the marketing, the demographic that it's trying to get to. Radio, again, is stuck in the past. It's competing against other radio stations rather than competing against streaming and all the other formats that are out there. So we're finding that radio is falling behind and is falling behind way quickly. So many of you listening to this don't listen to radio anymore. And I bet you the ones that do listen to radio a lot are very disgruntled with it because, again, it's not giving you what you want as compared to what you can get online. Will radio wise up? Will it change? Good question. Right now, it doesn't look like it. But as radio slowly goes down the death spiral, I think we'll see that smarter people will begin to take the mantle of major radio stations and, in fact, hopefully change it for the better. We can only see, but right now it's not looking too good. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. The second edition of my social media promotion for musicians handbook is now available on Amazon, iBooks, Ingram, and a bookstore near you. It's the manual for marketing yourself, your band, and your music online. It covers how to use virtually every important online platform for promotion. Also check out my courses at bobbyosinskicourses.com. 
Now, an interesting new development. I don't know if this is going to catch on or not, but this happened very, very quickly and very, very recently. A number of hackers at the Disrupt Hackathon in San Francisco over the last few days developed something called Otis, O-D-I-S. And what this is, is it uses Amazon's Alexa as a studio assistant. So you get Alexa as a personal studio assistant. What that means is by voice commands, you can ask it to drop into record. You can tell it to name a track. You can insert commands. You can do most of the things that you would normally do on a keyboard. You can use Alexa to do that. Is this a good thing? Is this something that you'd use all the time? I personally don't think I would because first of all, I'm just one of those guys that I don't really need a personal assistant and I don't use it all that much when I'm driving. I use it, but other than that, I don't. There are other people that use it all the time and really prefer to do that. So if that's the case, then you're really going to love this. And if not, then you're probably working the way you normally would anyway. But the interesting thing here is it looks like this could be available for just about any digital audio workstation via a MIDI interface. It's not a real product yet. And again, this just came out of a hackathon that was happening and it was a 24 hour project. They developed it in that short period of time, but there was so much press and so much interest in it that the developers think that they're going to continue on it. So look for the Otis personal studio assistant to become reality pretty soon. My guest today is Ian Kagi, who's the director of operations at Power Station at Berkeley, New York City. He is the whole story and how the transition from Avatar Studios back to Power Station with Berkeley School of Music's involvement is taking place. I spoke with him via Skype from one of the studios in the famous Power Station. Tell me, what is your official gig at Berkeley? Sure. So uh, I've just been hired as director of operations of Power Station at Berkeley NYC. And so what that means is uh, Berkeley has basically taken control of what was formerly Avatar Studios. And the hope uh, for Berkeley is to not only use it for educational resources, but to also keep it open as a commercial facility or, or to reopen it as a commercial facility as well. Um, and, and the idea of that is to, to service the New York music community and, and obviously keep a space that's important as this uh, to the New York music community open and, and have sessions going on while that's happening. That's pretty cool. So many of us who've recorded their love avatar power station and there was a big fear of course in the community that it would end up being condos or something like that so it's great that the white horses come in the cavalry <laughs> I, I think uh yeah it's it's a uh, you know I've, I've worked in new york for for you know a little over 10 years and uh i worked uh, at right track which became msr studios and so you know i watched two built two facilities close in the time that, that i was that i was you know with that place and uh, it's really you know it's really tough to to make a go of it especially with the way real estate is in, in new york and obviously with the changes that have happened in our industry as far as uh you know revenues coming in so it's uh it's really incredible uh that you know Berkeley has sort of provided this opportunity for us to kind of, uh, in, in essence, sort of save this place from, as you mentioned, becoming condos and also grow that as a place for music. So I think it's um, it's a really incredible, you know, kind of, it's some good news for a city that's badly in need of good news in the music industry, I would say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's a shame because it's happening everywhere where real estate is just pricing studios out of business, especially in downtown. If you're in, you know, the hotspot, it's very difficult to stay there because rates haven't raised in 20 years. They've kind of been the same. 
No, that's that's absolutely true. I think it's you know it's it's really incredible that sort of the the business model has stayed, and the rates structure, as you mentioned, has stayed so so sort of stagnant. And actually, you know, clients more and more because they get less money, especially with labels and 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 clients like labels or movie studios. You know, they're up against it as well as far as trying to lower rates and keep costs down. So it um it's really pretty incredible as as the cost of living and everything else around it in New York has kind of skyrocketed. The studio business has stayed pretty much at the, the same place, and so it's it's really hard for pieces places to sort of compete and stay stay in business. Give me some background on the avatar purchase here because i know that a trustee came in and actually bought it for berkeley am i getting that right yeah that that's correct um so it, it's actually a, a uh, it's a partnership with uh with a couple different entities that are sort of making this possible to happen so the first as you mentioned is is an extremely generous donation from a berkeley trustee named peter muller or pete muller and uh, the second is obviously Berkeley's involvement in it. And then the third is, is an involvement from the city of New York as well. So um, it's kind of like, a, 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 as they describe it, sort of a private-public partnership. Uh, but the, the entity is run essentially and operated by Berkeley College of Music. So the way I understand it is Berkeley wanted to get a definite presence in New York City for quite some time. And I guess this is the best way to do it. Yeah, you know, everything's the timing sort of worked out. I think that Berkeley has long been looking for a presence in New York um, because, you know, especially on the East Coast, it's such a, and, in, and throughout the United States, it's a center for culture and music. And there's so many Berkeley alumni here that are working in the industry um, that Berkeley was really looking for a way to kind of break into that market. And, you know, it's brainstorming about this idea of, of, you know, kind of what if Berkeley could take over Avatar and sort of create this sort of center for music in New York. Uh, and that's kind of where the, the idea germinated. And then sort of one thing led to another and, and the, you know, Berkeley got involved and uh, it's amazing, but it finally sort of has come to fruition and actually happened. Was the sale over a long period of time or did it happen quickly? Um, it didn't happen quickly. I think there was a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that, that, that happened in, in the, in the interim of, of kind of making sure that it was right making sure that, that it was organized in a way that was, that Berkeley felt comfortable. So I, I think that, yeah, the process took, took, a, took a little while. Um, you know, I've, I've only been brought on recently, so I, uh, I, I wouldn't, couldn't say definitively of exactly how long it's been sort of in the works, but uh, I've been involved in the project since, since August. Now I understand that Avatar, not the studio so much, but the building requires some retrofits and upgrades and things like that. How about that? Can you fill me in on that a little Absolutely. bit? Yeah, happy to do that. Yeah, for for the moment, you know, just to, to for the moment, basically the studio operations have been kind of shut down here. Um, but our hope is to try to open them up uh, first commercially, kind of as soon as we can. But there is a lot of stuff that needs to be done now. A lot of that stuff is not to the recording infrastructure or the studios because the studios here are, are, are really wonderful and, and that's kind of what we want to preserve. Um, most of what needs to happen to the building are kind of major renovations in the other spaces. So, for instance, uh, you know, to bring it up to uh, ADA compliance, to uh, kind of upgrade the elevators, to upgrade the air conditioning systems. And so all the things that um, are, you know, are not super exciting in the studio side of things, but are things that take a significant amount of time to, to upgrade and retrofit. And then also in that time while we're doing that, uh, the basement is, is the hope for the basement is it's going to be turned into a multi-use space for performance and rehearsals and all sorts of things that can happen down there. And a huge push that we want to do is actually start to get into multimedia. So getting into more uh, video services offered for clients. So, you know, for someone that could book, let's say, Studio A, they could come in and have a sort of an all-inclusive kind of package where they were able to record video and, and audio at the same time for multimedia purpose. Another thing is, is a big push in getting into sort of the virtual reality and augmented reality world as well. So there's talks of, uh, you know, putting in a, a sort of studio for that in the basement as well uh, along the space. So I think that 
Berkeley's vision for this and also the city's vision for this is, is trying to make it a place that's sort of a, a, a really amazing hub for, uh, you know, music and culture in, in New York and kind of being on the cutting edge of technology. So a lot of those renovations are going to take a significant amount of time. Um, and I don't think that, you know, everybody that's on board with the project realizes that, you know, in order to do that, I think that the studios are going to need to shut down in order for us to to do it efficiently and, and, and correctly. And then we'll, re, you know, and be able to reopen once that's finished. Do you think that'll be a problem business-wise? And, and the reason why I say that is out here in California where we've had so many studios more so in the past than now, but would go into a lockout for a year. And sure, you'd have that great year with that one client. And then after that, everybody who wanted to use that studio would kind of move on. It was very difficult to get them back. You think something like that might happen? Um, you know, I think that there's, there's always the fear of that. And I think that, um, you know, you bring up an excellent point that New York has had to constantly adapt because a lot of our larger rooms have, have shut down over the years. Um, and, you know, New York is resilient and, and that's always been my experience. So, you know, I don't think, I think that while we're closed, there definitely will be recording going on, lots of recording going on and they'll figure out different ways to do it, different spaces that, that can accommodate that. However, I'm hoping that, you know, the legacy of the place and, and the importance of this place, uh, I'm hoping will, will, will drive clients to come back here and work here. And the other thing is we're, we're really hoping to try to make this as world-class a facility as, as humanly possible. So we really want to make the client experience the, the first thing here. Um, and so we're hoping that, that once we are able to reopen, that we can provide, uh, you know, excellent service and excellent, you know, customer service to, to our clients so that this is a place that people really, really want to work in. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing because I think in any time in the studio world, you know, it, you kind of get one shot at that. So you get one chance at, at um, a lot of times like sort of winning back clients or, or getting them to, to sort of trust the, the project. Um, but we're hoping to, to make a good first impression and hoping to, to keep that, that client base alive. I know one of the problems that Oceanway in Nashville had when that was bought by Belmont, there was a lot of clients who wanted to work there and thought, well, I'm going to get bumped by Belmont when they need it for a class or something, which I don't think turned out that way. But, you know, that's a fear that clients have that, oh, well, the, this entity that owns this now has a vested interest in doing things for itself rather than for me. So, I mean, that, that's something that I think has to be overcome, at least that perception, don't you think? I 100% agree. You know, it's um, having, you know, my experience is, you know, I've worked in professional studios, but also in education as well. So I, I absolutely understand the sort of stigma associated with having an educational facility run, uh, you know, run a, a professional recording studio. And so I think that that what we're hoping to do from the beginning is hope, hoping to organize it in a way that um, kind of what Belmont, you know, how they operate is, is a great model. Because from what I understand in Belmont, basically the, the educational facility is sort of another client of the of the studio. So they kind of book it the same way that, that uh, you know, that a normal studio client would book that room. And we're, we're hoping to set up a model that's, that's similar to that so we can sort of service all the needs that we need to do. But I think, um, you know, a, a big priority, at least from my side of it, is, you know, the educational part is really important because that's a, that's a mission for Berkeley. But for me, what's extremely important is that we maintain this as, as a viable commercial studio as well. So, you know, I'm hoping that we can find the correct balance of that that will make our clients comfortable here. Will anything in the studios change in order to accommodate the educational model? In other words, do you think it will require different equipment or, you know, slightly different upgrades or something like that? I think the the primary concern in the beginning, you know, a lot of the stuff that we want to upgrade uh, has to do with with infrastructure and also, as I mentioned, kind of bringing it more up to date with video and, and, and other things that that, are, that would be great to have in the studio that are not currently there. As far as the audio infrastructure, you know, these are pretty incredible studios. 
And so I think that a lot of the stuff that's here that's good, we want to keep and we want to keep that that way. I think that in the meantime, though, the things that can be upgraded are, are some things that, you know, are really difficult for studio. We're, we're really difficult for studios to do just because of the revenue that was coming in. So one really good example is that the Pro Tools systems here are, you know, we're currently running the facility currently is equipped with Pro Tools 10 and kind of the older interfaces. And so our hope is to try to bring those up to to, you know, kind of the cutting edge of, of whatever we can. Uh, to really make sure that we can service both a client that wants to use, let's say, you know, uh, do an analog mix or, or a client that wants to mix in the box so that we can kind of, you know, keep on the cutting edge of that. The other things that I think that we can, you know, work on is just um, trying to upgrade things like, you know, headphone systems and, and uh, all, all sorts of stuff that, that to kind of modernize it a little bit. But I think that all of us here really want to make sure that what's great about these studios preserved and that we're not touching the things that work here, if that, if that makes sense. How long do you think the studios will be shut down? It's hard to say. We, you know, we're in the planning and development phase right now. Um, and you know, everybody wants to get this right and everybody wants to make sure that this is, uh, you know, this is going to be done done well. So we're, we're actually currently working on that timeline to try to figure out what, what's feasible. One of the things that I find interesting is I have a friend who's a uh, maintenance guy out here and he has several studios that basically do R&B and hip-hop. And he's called in often to fix large-scale consoles because channels don't work from underuse. <laughs> you know, so they get a hip-hop yeah. session in yeah, yeah. that uses four faders and one for vocals, and then the rest of them aren't used. So when a real client comes in, I shouldn't say a real client, for when a client comes in that's going to use all that, then they find that there's a lot of scratching and things that don't work. So I would think that that would be something to look out for if the consoles, for instance, are not being utilized for a long period of time. That's a, yeah, that's a huge, you know, that's a huge concern for sure. You know, I, I um, part of my background was at uh, MSR was as a, as a technician. And so I worked for a, a long time doing, uh, doing maintenance as well. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we ran into that a lot. So for example, even if we had a, you know, even in the short term, you know, analog consoles are very fickle and, and can, uh, you know, especially with lost switches can be problematic. And so exactly what you're talking about is, you know, happens all the time, which is you have, you know, a client that comes in that's just using, let's say, Pro Tools or something else where they're not using any of the console. And then the next client would come in, you know, doing a mix and you'd find all the channels that were, you know, not used to where they had all these issues. And so uh, anytime a studio is dormant, you know, that is definitely a fear. Um, the good news is that, um, you know, under the guidance of Roy Hendrickson, who is actually staying on with the project, um, the studios here have been kept in really excellent condition and really good shape. And so our hope is to, is to, is to keep that, you know, tradition alive and to also make sure that we're doing whatever maintenance is needed so that even though the studios are offline, when they come back online, the consoles will be in as good a shape as possible. What's your background, Ian? Um, my background is uh, I started as a musician, and so I started playing in bands in, in high school, and, and uh, got into like got into home recording when I was when I was uh, when I kind of started that as out of necessity because my town didn't really have recording studios in it. Um, and then I went to Berkeley uh, College of Music in the music production engineering department, um, and was there for four years. Then I came down to New York City uh, and worked uh, at uh, what was Legacy, which was used to be Right Track, and then became MSR. And so at that studio, I kind of worked at every position you can imagine. So I came in as a general assistant, which is kind of like a runner position. Um, I worked as an assistant. I worked as a technician there. Um, I engineered there. So I did a lot of, you know, sort of came up in, at that facility. Um, and then uh, I was a technical director for performing arts space for a little while in New York City as well. And then uh, in 2000. And uh, 13, I was hired to help go and uh, start uh, the 
a master's program in uh, technology for Berkeley in Valencia, Spain. And so under the guidance of uh, Stephen Weber, who's actually involved in this project as well, uh, I went out there and, and was on faculty of that of that program in Spain for a couple of years. And uh, then I came back to New York and have been freelancing up until this project. It's a big jump to go from being a musician to being a maintenance technician. How did that happen? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I always loved recording and, and I always, you know, I always loved physics and, and technology and all of that stuff. So it, it always fascinated me. Uh, when I was in college, I sort of had blinders on of wanting to become an audio engineer. Um, so I really focused my time on, on recording and all of that. And that was kind of what my intention was. So I came down to New York, you know, worked, uh, got a job at a big studio as, as a runner and then was really looking to do that path. Um, and then there was an opening, uh, you know, one of our, one of the techs that was at the studio actually left, um, and so there was an opening available and I, you know, I ended up voicing some, some, uh, interest in actually learning some of the stuff behind that cause it, it fascinated me. And, uh, so I was really lucky that there was a, there's an amazing chief engineer of that facility, a guy named, uh, Brad Lee. And, uh, he gave me a shot, even though I didn't really have much experience, uh, at kind of taking that role. And it was incredible. The, the education I got from, from doing that for a few years was, was just invaluable. And so I think that, um, for me, it's, it's, uh, from music to technology, all that stuff for me is, has always been super interrelated and also super fascinating to me. So I, you know, I, I really am thankful that that opportunity came along because I learned a, a whole, whole lot. What would you prefer to do? That's a, you know, that's a really tough question. <laughs> I think that, um, my thing is I love being around music. So I think that any, any way I can do that, whether it's, you know, helping to facilitate a studio that records great music, whether it's uh, recording music myself. So, I mean, I've just always loved being around the studio and always loved being in this, this industry. Um, uh, I, you know, I would say probably, you know, I love the creative side of it, but I think it's, you know, I like a mix of both, honestly. And, and that's what I've, in my freelance career, at least, that's kind of what I've tried to maintain is being able to sort of do both those roles. It hasn't always been the easiest, but it's definitely, uh, it's definitely been pretty rewarding. Once upon a time in the analog days, especially of tape machines, if you had any kind of technical expertise, you would have no trouble getting a gig. But I guess really it's the same thing now if you have software expertise because there are so many people that are using Pro Tools or Logic or, you know, pick your DAW and have only a basic knowledge of how to use it. I'm sure there's always a space for that. Are you more of a, an analog guy or more of a software guy? Um, you know, as you mentioned, you kind of have to learn learn both. So I think that, um, you know, I, I do have a lot of, at least at least in audio software, kind of understand a lot of that background um, and, you know, installations and that kind of stuff. So th that's definitely part of my background. And then, um, but luckily at MSR, you know, we had a lot of, a lot of great analog equipment and large format consoles. And, and so I, a lot of the stuff that I learned tech wise did relate and was, was based in the analog world. Um, also, you know, the other cool thing about working there was, you know, that facility at the time was one of sort of the last rooms left that kind of along with avatar as well, that could offer sort of services and multi-track recording to tape. And so I was really fortunate to get to, you know, learn how to align a tape machine and learn how to service tape machines and stuff as well. Uh, and how to set that stuff up properly, um, which was really, really amazing. And, and that stuff absolutely fascinates me. I mean, I, I you know, I work, you know, predominantly as an engineer, obviously in the digital realm of, of what's, cause that's necessary today. But I think that for me, you know, the sort of, uh, craftsmanship of working on tape and and in dealing with with that equipment and and sort of what it takes to do that it's it's always been fascinating and and to me it's uh it's such a cool art form um as well so i always loved that as as well which was which so i, I uh, was fortunate enough to kind of get a little bit of both of that i'm dating myself with this but this is back when i was teaching at berkeley which was uh, late 70s 
I went to the MCI factory for training, and the training was both on maintenance of the consoles, because at Berkeley at the time we had two MCIs, and also with tape machines. And it was really interesting because they took us through everything about aligning a tape machine and even, you know, shimming up tape paths and things like that. But it was so early in the process that Simpty was just coming in and the first synchronizer, they showed us a behind the scenes of the first MCI synchronizer that was such a big deal and hardly worked at the time. And also a three inch 32 track that they had, which I think only two people ever bought, (laughs) as I understand it. A little impractical, but very cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But anyway, yeah, it just goes to show you how things have changed so much because you wouldn't go through something like that now, but it was a big deal at the time. No, yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. You know, the again, the the a lot of people would book the sort of studio that I worked at um, because of the the ability to do tape machine sessions. And so, um, you know, I remember this one project that came in that actually required us to to sort of to use links uh, and synchronization and all that stuff. And it was such a good learning experience to to go through and and see how that was uh, you know how that was done and how it's and the amazing thing is how well that stuff works. I mean, you know it's amazing sort of get to this point where stuff becomes really technologically kind of well thought out and then it kind of reaches it reaches its obsolescence where people stop using it. But, I, and so synchronization is, is it's pretty fascinating. And, and it's also, um, you know, that stuff works really well. You know, we did sessions where we were syncing up, uh, you know, two, two inch machines or two, two inch machines and pro tools, or even three, you know, three multi-track recorders together. And, and, uh, it's amazing when you get everything set up, right. How well that stuff actually works. Yeah. But it took a long time to get there. I can tell you for sure. <laughs> <laughs> everybody I can only imagine everybody that worked in that realm from the beginning of it really has a lot of bad word stories to tell because there were <laughs> you know things that didn't work or worked and all of a sudden didn't and you couldn't figure out why and you go for a couple of days on a phone talking to to the the factory and everybody says no 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 but it's it should be working fine well it isn't working so (laughs) one of those things hey i'm curious are there any digital recorders at avatar right now like uh 3324s or something like 3348s yeah there's actually they maintained uh one 3348 that is still in the building so there's still there's still a 3348 in the building man for a little while i would say six months every major studio had to have one and then Pro Tools caught on, and within another six-month period, they were gone. They were done. Wow. It just goes to show yeah. you how quickly technology can change. That's a, Yeah, that's another, that's another one of those things where, you know, that was such an incredible technology. Like, especially the Sony machines were, were so well thought out. You know, they had this sort of audition punching and all sorts of stuff that was just so revolutionary. And it's amazing that, um, you know, it's, it's really amazing, as you say, that had such a short lifespan. Speaking of Avatar, what, what is going to be the name? Is it going to remain as Avatar? Or is it going to be a new name? No, the the new name is uh, is Power Station at Berkeley NYC, and so the studio side of operations is going to return to the original name, which was Power Station. I think everybody who ever had any experience of Power Station is going to love that. <laughs> We've already gotten you know a, a lot of positive feedback um, and uh, about about going back with the name, and you know it, the thing is that uh, yeah, it's just it's a uh, it's kind of a, it's such an iconic name and such an iconic name for this place that we're we're really excited to be able to have that name back and to be able to use that name. That's very cool, very cool, Ian. So, what's your title there again? My title is Director of Operations uh, for Power Station at Berkeley, NYC. Okay, you wouldn't be the studio manager then. You wouldn't be actually doing any of the booking or anything. 
that will that will likely fall on and you know once we get up and running that that responsibility will likely fall under my my purview most likely um but it's also at the moment it's it's uh, it's a lot of operation stuff as well along with that so the the booking will will likely fall under under my my care as well but for the moment it's it's been pretty much operational stuff for the moment what was the involvement of the city i understand that there was a grant or something like yep, that yep absolutely so the city is given a, a generous financial financial gift, um, and then there's also uh, they're very much partnered in trying to develop uh, what the content of, of the place is going to be for a lot of the stuff that uh, you know that they're we're working with them currently to try to figure out what that program is going to look like as far as supporting New York City. Um, so many ideas of you know of educational program obviously, but also offering a you know, uh, this kind of rehearsal space that, you know, the basement is again going to be transformed into sort of a multi-purpose facility. And so there's a lot of really exciting things we're talking about with the city to try to, um, you know, make this not only a recording studio, but also a place that services that community as well. I know a lot of cities and New York is not the only one, but I'd say most major cities now have someone within the government, city government and high up in the government that's very cognizant of the entertainment business and especially entertainment facilities because it's not only studios, but it's clubs that in fact are going away and, and music venues in general, mostly because of gentrification of a neighborhood. So it's really cool that they recognize that and are willing to put some dough up behind it to uh, really make this work. Because that doesn't always happen. They might recognize the fact that something is happening, but they don't really do anything about it. Yeah, of course. I think um, you know, New York. Uh, I think that the you know the new initiative of sort of the the uh, that they're they're doing to support music and especially you know music and, and culture in, in New York is and entertainment is 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 pretty wonderful. And I think that um, it's it's much needed as for, to keep that you know to keep that stuff open and and running as as you mentioned. So you know we're really excited that, that the city is willing to partner with us and and uh, and take part in this project. Well, the cool thing about Power Station is the fact that it has that big room, and it's probably, I guess, the last one in New York, right? Yeah, you know, of of its kind, you know, there, there are other spaces, large spaces to record uh, in New York City. You know, if you're going to do, let's say, an orchestra or, or let's say, uh, a large thing that doesn't necessarily need a, a ton of isolation, but the thing that Studio A here provides is that it's it's an you know it's a large recording space with a big footprint that's pretty flexible, um, and that was a pretty innovative thing for its time. You know, there's a very sizable live room and then there's two sort of very large ISO booths in the, in the back of the live room. And those can either be open so that you have the whole floor kind of open to your, to your disposal, or they can be walled off. So you have three separate recording spaces. Um, and that gives the, and there's also a number of other small ISO booths as well, but that flexibility is really what makes it a, a pretty incredible, uh, well, also in the fact that it sounds amazing, but it's, uh, you know, that flexibility is really the key to what makes it such a, you know, such, such an easy place to record and such a, such a nice place to record. Who originally designed a studio? That's one thing I don't know about it. Uh, so Tony Bongiovi is that was the founder of uh, Power Station, um, and he he designed and sort of came up with the concepts for the for the rooms. Wow, I had no idea. I thought it was someone outside. Not to not to my knowledge, and I again I can you know I'm not a I can check with Roy who would who would who would have better knowledge. Me to, to to my knowledge, yeah, all the rooms were spec'd out and designed by Tony. Wow, initially, um, and then uh, Studio G, which is a sort of more modern uh, mix room that's here on the, on the third floor. Uh, Roy Hendrickson, who who again is is working with us, uh, had a had a you know kind of designed that room, but that was done uh, much later. Yeah, kudos to him for doing that. That's very cool. Not many engineers or studio owners can figure something out like that, even though they may know what sounds good and what doesn't. But uh, when you actually put the nails to wood, it's a different story. That's for sure.
Absolutely. Yeah. No, Tony definitely had a pretty incredible vision and, and made a, you know, was able to create such a, such a cool place with, with some pretty unique spaces for recording and making music. So we're, you know, again, we're, we're super excited to be able to preserve, uh, you know, preserve that legacy and also, you know, to do it under the name that he originally, originally titled it. So we, we feel, uh, you know, we definitely feel, uh, uh you know, we're, we're very grateful to him, uh, for kind of, you know, putting this place together and also grateful to, to, uh, you know, the, uh, Kirk and the, the avatar, uh, era was also a really great one for the studio and, and with a lot of great legacy as well. So, you know, we're, we're hoping to be really good stewards of this, this amazing facility because it's been taken care of pretty well, um, up, up through the years. So, you know, we, we definitely understand that, that burden and responsibility. Last question, Ian, this is a little off the subject, but something you're probably very well qualified to answer since you've been at a number of different facilities and been around, especially in New York, where it's a little more cutthroat than most other places. What's the best piece of business advice that you've ever received from someone or maybe you learned along the way? Um, the best piece of business advice that I've ever learned, and this is even just per- personally, is just, um, you know, it, it's, it kind of goes without saying, but, but the best piece of advice I can, I can offer is just don't burn any bridges. You know, the, the, the biggest thing is that this is such a small community and it's uh, everybody knows everybody. So, you know, it, it really behooves you to, to try to be, you know, try to be as courteous and as nice to people as you can and as respectful to people as you can. Um, because you just never know who you're going to work for that knows somebody else. And it's such a business based on connections that, um, you know, the best thing I can say is just, you know, yeah, don't, don't burn any bridges. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby Osinski.